0: Uh, Good evening, welcome. Thank you for coming. A little bit uh, down on numbers uh, tonight, but that's okay. It's uh, good to have you and uh, appreciate you being here as we uh, continue our studies uh, in uh, specific evangelistic strategies. Um, We've been looking for the last couple of weeks at how Jesus um, conducted various evangelistic conversations and so far we've seen how he spoke to cold and indifferent people, people who were like the hard wayside soil in the parable of the sower and then last week we looked at how he spoke to self-righteous people like the scribes and the pharisees. Uh, in in Jesus' dealings, with various kinds of people, he sets us a good example for us to follow. And tonight we're going to come back again to the parable of the sower and focus on another category of people. Now the parable of the sower is recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And uh, I've actually given you a little tabulation uh, there um, from each of the three Gospels. It's very interesting to compare... Um, the three different accounts. There's a slight variations uh, in there, but uh, for for our purposes this evening, we're going to read from Mark chapter four. So please turn in your Bible to Mark chapter four. We're going to read the whole parable. Um, we're only interested in uh, a, a, a portion of it uh, specifically tonight, but for context and uh, uh, in honor in, in honor of God's word, I'd like to uh, read the extended portion Mark chapter 4 beginning at verse 1 and he began again to teach by the seaside and there was gathered unto him a great multitude so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land and he taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine hearken Behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. And the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth. And immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no fruits and the other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty some sixty and some an hundred and he said unto them he that hath ears to hear let him hear and when he was alone they that were about him uh, with the twelve asked him of the parable and he said unto them unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God but unto them that are without All these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? and How then will ye know all parables? The sower soweth the word. These are they by the wayside, where the word is sown, But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. These are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty and some hundred. Well, let's uh, pray and ask God to bless our time in his word this evening. Heavenly Father, thank you for the scriptures that you've given to us. Uh, Thank you that uh, it's all profitable. Uh, Thank you that it's uh, all inspired. And uh, through it, uh, Lord, uh, we can uh, come to know Christ as Saviour, but also uh, those who know Christ as Saviour can uh, be sanctified and fully equipped uh, to do that which you uh, call us to do. And uh, so we pray that uh, the, uh, the benefit that the scriptures can be to us tonight would be uh, realised. Uh, Lord, help us, we pray. Uh, teach us your ways and teach us how we might better uh, represent you as uh, ambassadors for Christ, uh, being witnesses and testimony, uh, t- giving testimony uh, to the grace, the gospel of the grace of God, uh, which is uh, able to save people's souls. Uh, help us uh, in this we pray tonight we ask it in jesus name amen now um, <clears throat> as i said in your notes here, i've given you a tabulation of the three accounts of the parable of the sower not just not the whole portion but just those portions that are relevant to us this evening that is the stony ground and the thorny ground the parable itself and the interpretation stony ground and the thorny ground let's uh Take them one at a time. First of all, the stony ground, which represents a shallow heart. Before the farmer would sow his field, he would remove all the visible rocks. Uh, And in Israel, that was no small task. Have you ever been there? There are rocks everywhere. Um, You go to Mount Carmel, there's rocks everywhere. And when the Lord told... uh, uh, Elisha, to make a stone uh, to make a, an altar of stones, he wouldn't have to go very far. They're, they're everywhere. Just go and pick them up. But for the farmer to sow his field, what the first job is to get rid of all the visible rocks, no small task. In fact rabbis used to say, quote, "When God placed rocks on the earth, he dumped most of them in Israel. Now, the farmers would remove all the surface rocks from the field, but below the reach of the plough there was often a limestone bedrock and this is what Jesus is referring to here. Soil yes no rocks on the surface but below there is a bedrock which prohibits the roots developing properly. When the seed fell on this kind of ground, it would settle on the soft surface soil, which was tilled by the plough. It would then find some moisture, and the seed would then begin to sprout roots and grow. But as the young roots would not be able to anchor the plant adequately, that would be because the, the roots would hit the bedrock. And whatever nutrients were in the soil, the plant would process immediately and it would shoot up. It would sprout up into the sunlight, require more moisture. But because the roots couldn't penetrate the bedrock to get all the nutrients it needed, the fragile plant was scorched by the sun. It dries up. It withers away. And in his interpretation, Jesus compared this soil to a person who hears the word who hears the gospel and immediately responds with joy or gladness. Both Both words are used. The word immediately is used as well. There's an immediate response, joyful response, a glad response. Initially, the person shows some dramatic change. They absorb all the truth that is supplied to them. They're overjoyed at the message. They make a profession of faith. Their positive responses give us the impression that this conversion is genuine. Everything is bright with promise. There's this enthusiasm, lasts for a period of time, maybe weeks, perhaps months. But like the seed that is quickly scorched, the apparent life is in fact shallow. It proves to be superficial and temporary because there is no depth of earth that's the problem there's no depth to the sinner's emotionally driven response no fruit comes from it it's a false profession now before we go any further in the parable so what we see is that the test of genuineness is is the fruit. Okay, fruit is the test of a genuine conversion. Fruit is the test of a of true salvation. Jesus made the same point, Matthew chapter seven verse sixteen: "Ye shall know them by their fruits." So, what fruit are we talking about? What is the fruit of genuine salvation? What's the fruit of genuine conversion? Well, um, the scripture is helpful here. We don't have to guess. Because there are different portions of Scripture which talk about fruit uh, and it calls it by specific names. Uh, Who's got um, Romans 6, verse 22? Agnes, can you read that for us, please? Okay, fruit unto holiness. Okay, the holiness in life is one example of... The fruit of salvation. Uh, who's got Galatians 5 23? Okay, Larissa, thanks. Nine, um, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, calm, generous, goodness, faith, weakness, temperance. Okay. Okay, so um, the fruit of this godly character okay, uh, is another evidence, another fruit of salvation. We develop godly character. Colossians 1.10. Thanks, Steve. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being in every good and in the of God. fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So good works are an evidence of salvation. Good works are the fruit of salvation. Uh, Romans 1.13. Thanks, Ron. Okay. So Paul, as a missionary, uh, evangelizing, is visiting churches, establishing uh, the brethren, um, sharing the gospel with others, helping Christians to grow. Okay, this is what he's talking there. I want to come to you at Rome. Share the gospel again. Be a blessing and a help to you. Um, win people to Christ. Help them to grow. That's another evidence of salvation, another fruit of salvation. Uh, Romans 15, 25 to 28. Okay, so the, the, the giving, the sharing of our uh, material blessings with others uh, is called fruit there. Sharing of what we've been given. And then Hebrews 13 verse 15. Okay. Praise to God coming out of our mouth, out of our heart. This is also another... A fruit of salvation in our lives. Okay, so, so this, this is, and there's probably more. I'm sure there's more um, in the scripture. Um, but these are, this is what, it, what genuine conversion uh, produces. Now, coming back to the stony ground. Notice here that the true nature of this false conversion is revealed by the heat of the sun. Now, sun is good for a plant. But in this case, the sun actually destroys the plant. And in the parable, Jesus says the the sun represents persecution, affliction that comes on account of the word. Such hardships are too much for this shallow heart to endure. And yet, persecution is actually a good thing for the genuine Christian. It tests our faith. It proves the reality of our profession. It helps us to grow. Now, all that is true if a person is genuinely born again and has got spiritual roots, just like the sun helps the plant draw up the water and get nourishment from the soil. So suffering, persecution, affliction, trials help the true believer to trust in the Lord and draw upon his resources. But there's got to be roots. And if there is no root, of course, there can be no fruit. No fruit, no salvation. Well, let's think about the, thor- the thorny ground, the crowded heart. That is the heart that in which thorns and thistles grow up and crowd out the seed of the word, the, the plant that comes from the seed of the word. This soil is filled with thorns. It's deceptive. It has in it the seeds of noxious weeds. The sower can't see the foreign seeds, of course, but they are there. Weeds grow very naturally. No farmer has to plant weeds. They come up whether he wants them or not. And as he plows the field, it appears fertile, but it is. Proves to contain foreign seeds that are ready to produce an infestation of weeds. And when the good seed is forced to compete for life against the dormant thorns and thistles, the farmer's crop will be choked out. Eventually, the weeds steal the seed's moisture, they veil its sunlight. The result is that the plant growing up dies. Now, it's interesting that the word that Jesus used for thorns here is the Greek word acantha, which is a particularly kind of thorny weed common in the Middle East, frequently found in cultivated soil. In fact, it's the same word that Jesus, which is used in Matthew 27, 29, to refer to the crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head. These unwanted plants were common and dangerous to crops. And Jesus compares this thorny soil to people who hear the gospel, they hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust for other things entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. No fruit comes from it. Again, there is this false profession The cares of this world refers to the problems of life. If if someone's a Christian, that doesn't mean they're given blanket protection against common disasters. The homes of believers are just as subject to cyclones and hurricanes and hail as is the homes of unbelievers. Now sometimes we pray and God does miraculous things. But it's a delusion to think that Christians are exempt from problems simply because they're Christians. Fire, theft, accident, harm, danger, common to all men. Christians get sick. They grow old, they die just like everyone else. Problems knock on the doors of both believers and unbelievers. Now, of course, as Christians, we do have some advantages. We have a Father in heaven uh, who is our refuge and strength, the very present help in time of trouble. We have the Holy Spirit within us who comforts us We have the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who does minister to us and is able to make all things work together for good to those who love him. For true believers, problems become the means of growth and grace. But shallow professions of faith soon wither. They're choked by the cares of life. And... Many people think in such circumstances that God has let them down. God has let them down. This is not what I thought Christianity would be. I didn't sign up for this. And so they turn away. They're overcome and they turn away. Their initial response comes to nothing, the cares of this world. Jesus also spoke about the deceitfulness of riches, That refers to the prosperity of life. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth as such, but it does warn us that wealth can cause sin. It can be a real hindrance to spiritual growth. Riches are deceitful because they promise a lot more than they can produce. Their value is always changing. There's no no guarantee of security. And many people who have seemed to say yes to Christ actually lose sight of spiritual things when financial advancement beckons. Perhaps a promotion at work cuts right across a growing conviction that God wants someone to to be a missionary, for example. Business begins booming. The money is pouring in, but it's at the cost of neglecting gathering together with God's people when prosperity arrives it brings the entanglements of luxury and ease and the gospel seeds the seeds of the gospel can easily be choked out by success the lust of other things refers to the pleasures of life Often pleasures that are legitimate in themselves can take up time that could be, perhaps should be devoted to God's work. Or sinful pleasures allure and choke the seed. Some people amount to nothing for God because they've refused to give up some destructive dominating habit that gives them temporary pleasure, and the Lord Jesus warned that the pleasures of life can strangle the seed. The seed has little chance to survive when it's filled with such thorns. Pleasure seekers may profess to be saved, but their lives betray them. Their profession is not real because they give no evidence that the word of God is bearing spiritual fruit in their lives. And so the seeds of the gospel, we have these gospel conversations. We share, we talk to people about the gospel. The seeds of the gospel fall on rocky soil hearers and thorny soil hearers. But in each of these cases, no fruit results. In each case, there's an immediate response, but there's no fruit that remains. It's a false profession. Now, two important things to note here. Number one, <clears throat> Jesus is not saying here that the people represented by these two soils were saved and then lost their his or her salvation. He's saying that the person never had salvation to begin with. In one case, it was a shallow emotional experience. that was only on the surface. In the other case, it was an insincere experience that surrendered to the influences of the world. The proof of salvation is not hearing the word. Because one, two, three, four conditions, they all heard the word. Proof of salvation is not even not hearing the word. It's not even in the initial response, enthusiastic response to it. The proof of salvation is the fruit. As Jesus said, Matthew 7 verse 16, "Ye shall know them by their fruits. Secondly, Jesus is not saying that the negative responses should be blamed on the farmer or the sower. The problem is not that the evangelist was was not clever enough, not gifted enough, not popular enough. Rather, The problem is with the soil. Now the stony soil and the thorny soil are distinct. They're different. They're different categories and yet they both share something in common. That's why we brought them both together tonight. Both of them teach us that there are some people who readily respond to the gospel. Their initial response is a positive one, they respond quickly. And they are, certainly to our perception, supply, surprisingly receptive. We get excited because their response is so unlike many other conversations that we have. They just seem to be so ready for the gospel easy to reach with the gospel like fruit for the picking to change the analogy they're not at all hard-hearted they're not at all cold and different like the wayside soil they're not proud and self-righteous like the scribes and the pharisees these people are humble they're open we present them with the gospel they embrace it enthusiastically the initial signs are good they might start attending church with us They might desire to grow, their their level of interest is high. However, before too long with the passing of time, their enthusiasm wanes. There are pressures that come upon them from without. Affliction, persecution bears down upon them. But there's also something going on within, desires within, which cause them to be conflicted. There's, There's struggle now. And they discover that Christianity is not what they expected. they're not getting out of it what they wanted and eventually they drop out altogether. What we see in the stony ground and the thorny ground are a category of people who are initially interested in Christianity but because they uh, initially interested in Christianity, because they believe it will give them something that they want for themselves. They're self-interested. okay, And that's the, the title you can put at the top of the first page. This is the category of people. These, there are people who are self-interested. There is something that attracts them to Christianity. Something other than forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God and a home in heaven for eternity. In your notes, they come to Christ thinking that he'll give them a much better life in the here and now. However, when they discover that the Christian life is hard and the price for following Christ is high, as a matter of fact, the Christian life might be a lot harder than the life they've just left. They decide that Christianity is not for them. And unfortunately, this is a common occurrence. And to make that point, Jesus tells us that Two of the three bad soils have this issue. Two of the three bad soils have this issue. Now, obviously, there's some particular difference between the stony soil and the thorny soil. Nevertheless, they both represent people who respond positively to the gospel initially. They make a profession of some kind. They give evidence of life. However, when the cost of following Christ becomes clear to them, it becomes evident that their interest in Christ was only for personal advantage. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus often encountered people like this. Many people had only a superficial commitment to him, but he didn't continue to cultivate that kind of soil. He made it very clear to these people That there's a cost involved in following him. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. And it came to pass, as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the son of man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand in the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. There are three different people here. With each of the three, the phrase follow thee or follow me is used. That's the issue here about following Christ. With the people who are, volunteer, are volunteering to do it, one person Jesus is inviting to do that. It's all about following Christ. Notice two of them say, But let me first. Let me first. And, and that's the issue for them. That's the whole issue. It's me first. It's got to be me first. There are things I, I need first. They put, it's me first and then you. This is typical of the self-interested person. person who, person who puts this, their own interests first. Now, as we said, Jesus is not saying that there was anything defective in the ministry of the sower, the evangelist. However, it does need to be noted that certain types of evangelism encourage false professions. For example, evangelism that preaches a false gospel will produce false professions. In recent decades, a lot of books have been written about church growth. Various techniques are employed, some of which focus on giving people what they want. They talk about unchurched Harry. Harry is unchurched. He's not interested in going to church. He's not interested in the gospel. Therefore, in order to win unchurched Harry, the church has to offer Harry something that appeals to Harry. And this is the philosophy of the seeker-sensitive church. That is, to become so sensitive to the needs of un- non christians to become so sensitive to the needs of the unchurched to become so sensitive to what they're really seeking then to design a church that provides for them and provides for that the church this is the church planning strategy they go and door knock an area we're going to start a new church in this area what kind of things would you like to see in this church so that you would attend please tell us and you write it down And then they design a church to meet all of those requests. What we end up with is perhaps perhaps a sprinkling of the gospel, but an abundance of entertainment and worldliness and companionship and pleasure. All these things with a view of attracting large numbers of unchurched people. And the strategy has proven very effective in attracting self-interested people And the results are many false professions. The interest is initially high. But when the realities of life hit, the superficial nature of their commitment to Christ is exposed, people fall away. The turnover rate is very, very high. It's because the service that entertained them to begin with doesn't sustain it. So they've got to do more next time and more next time, more next time it's hard to keep giving people what they want. There's a variation of the church growth movement is the prosperity gospel which is also a false gospel. Come to Jesus, he'll make you healthy and wealthy. Jesus had never never said anything like that to attract followers. He said the opposite, take up your cross, be willing to forsake all, lay down your life, On the back of your sheet, I've given you a very simple tabulation, contrast between the prosperity gospel and the biblical gospel. It's a helpful little summary there. Now, what can we do to discourage false professions? How can we best share God's word with self-interested people? What strategies did Jesus use with self-interested people that we can follow as our example? Here's a couple. Number one. Emphasise the cost of discipleship. Emphasise the cost of discipleship. If someone is very, very quick to respond to the gospel and seems to have a very superficial understanding, they haven't yet connected the dots about what it means to become a follower of Jesus, then make sure that you emphasise the cost of discipleship. Now, some people connect the dots very, very quickly. For example, if they're a Muslim They know what it means to become a Christian. I had one Muslim tell me, he said, I would love to become a Christian, but my family would kill me. He understands the cost. He has a depth of understanding what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's a life and death issue for him. But other people only have a very, very superficial understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And for them, we have to make sure that they understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. The great... Commission is a task committed to us, and the task is to call people to become followers of Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. The word for teach them. It's the Greek verb, to make disciples. Verse 20, Teaching them to observe all things that Jesus commanded. Now, most of that's going to be post-salvation. Okay, Sharing the gospel and um, introducing someone to Christ you know, can take place in a very short space of time. But sanctification, growing in grace, learning everything that Jesus said, becoming more and more like Christ, that's, that's a lifetime. But in sharing the gospel initially, people have to understand that the decision to trust Christ as Saviour is also a decision to follow him as master. We have to be upfront with people. It's not just in a fine print that's there. It certainly needs to be part of our evangelistic conversation. Otherwise, we are perhaps unwittingly encouraging just a superficial response. But if we faithfully m- explain what it means to be a Christian, then when the persecution comes, it doesn't come as a shock, it doesn't come as a great disappointment because it's been expected. You told me this when we, when we first talked about the gospel. When the internal struggles arise, it doesn't shock them and catch them off guard. some something they're prepared for. Because I understand this is what's going to happen if I become a follower of Christ. Our goal in life now is following Him, it's not living for self anymore. To be saved is to belong to Christ, to be reconciled to God, is to be united with Him. It's in step with Him. That's my new life in Christ. It's got to be part of our gospel presentation. Secondly, avoid earthly incentives. Avoid earthly incentives. Turn over to John chapter 6, please. John chapter 6 just so happens to be the longest chapter in the Gospel of John. It's 71 verses and it's interesting that the whole chapter is devoted to show how Jesus dealt with people who were following him but for the wrong reasons. They were following him for selfish reasons. They uh, committed themselves to him for selfish reasons, self-interested reasons. Verse 1 says, After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberius, And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. Now when it says there was a great multitude, we're not left to guess the number of people who were following him. If you look at verse 10, it tells the number of men was 5,000, if you look up Matthew's account, chapter 14, Matthew tells them that number, 5,000, did not include women and children. Many, many, many people. They're very, very interested in Jesus. They went to great lengths to follow him. Look at verse 22. And the day following, and the people stood on the other side of the sea, saw there was none other boat there, save the one into which his disciples were entered. And Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, howbeit there came other boats from Tiberius nigh unto the place where he did eat bread. Afterward the Lord, had, after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Their interest in Jesus is high and yet the chapter shows that most of them had not have had no interest in spiritual truth nor any inclination to turn from their sin there were other things about Jesus that interested them verse 2 some of them wanted to see the spectacular miracles verse 26 Others wanted Jesus to give them more free food. If you look at verse 15, some of them wanted to take him by force and make him king. They wanted him to be their political leader and lead a national uprising to deliver them from Roman occupation and to revive the fortunes of the nation. They wanted exciting events in their dreary lives. To them, this miracle worker, this healer of the sick, this miraculous provider of food, he was the most interesting prospect that came into their community for generations. Everyone was talking about him. Nevertheless, Jesus did not encourage this unenlightened enthusiasm. He didn't seek to win people by offering them earthly incentives as some people do today. And probably the proponents of this are are those who preach the prosperity gospel. Perhaps they're the most guilty of uh, offering earthly incentives for following Christ. And yet we can do a a similar thing by perhaps emphasizing the fact that Christian life's a better life than probably the one that you're living. And we we, we might do something like that to m- to make the gospel more appealing, more presentable. But Jesus actually discouraged people who are only after earthly, physical things. He presented them with substantial spiritual truth. The result being that many were completely turned Off by it, look at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. When the heat was applied, when they were scorched with concepts that weren't in line with their own expectations, when the teachings of Jesus came into conflict with their own desires, their own lusts, the seed withered, it was choked, dried nothing in other words when jesus faced self-interested people who are following him for, for things that they wanted out of him when he faced self-interested people jesus put them to the test he made the terms of discipleship so clear that only people with real spiritual concern would continue to follow him verse 67 then said jesus unto the 12 will you also go away and simon peter answered him lord to whom shall we go Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. One of Jesus' strategies that we should follow is to avoid earthly incentives because we might just in fact be encouraging a superficial response. Thirdly, understand that true faith is more than intellectual enthusiasm understand that true faith is more than intellectual enthusiasm the gospel of John records a number of qualities that self-interested people may possess and it's helpful to us to identify them so that we're not caught out by them if we have such conversation with such people just like the seed that springs up in the stony soil or the thorny soil some people display what seems to be a genuine belief in the gospel they believe that jesus is messiah they have given their intellectual assent but they don't possess saving faith look at verse 14 john 6 verse 14 says then those men when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did said this is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. So here's a group of people who understood intellectually that a great prophet was going to come into the world an anointed prophet greater than Moses it was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. Furthermore in addition to that the prophet Isaiah had prophesied that this promised anointed one would also be a miracle worker. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 42. Now on on their understanding of scripture and on their observation of the miracles that Jesus did, they believed that he is the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah. And yet in your notes, and yet we can see the very next verse that their understanding of the purpose of Jesus was way short of the mark. Jesus had to come the first time to deal with their sin, not to do as they wished, that is to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. And they lost interest in Jesus when he started talking about spiritual realities. They wanted him to be a political saviour, not a personal saviour from personal sin. In other words, a superficial person may accept the word of God, even the divinity of Christ, and yet remain totally self-interested. They may attend church. Might get enthusiastic about a Christian community. Might develop strong convictions that people need to hear about Jesus. And yet the self-interested person may be the same as the people here. Who when they discovered Jesus' agenda didn't fit their own. They go back and walk no more with him. There's this. Intellectual enthusiasm, but no personal submission. He's the rightful king, but he's not their personal saviour from sin. He's not their personal lord and master. Um, Peter Masters in his book uh, provides uh, a helpful paragraph. I included the whole thing there for you. He so says, some years ago, a brilliant speaker and writer in the field of Christian apologetic reasoning gained tremendous following in the universities of America and Europe. The skill and strength of his arguments attracted a huge number of students and other young people to the Christian faith. However, these enthusiastic converts mostly tended to slip back into their worldly ways once they left the university environment. The man at the centre of this, all this made a powerful contribution to the field of evangelistic literature, but his following soon peaked and faded. Why did those young people not continue in their profession? The answer is that this era of brilliant apologetic evangelism happened to coincide with a period during which students became disenchanted with materialistic philosophy. Many people wanted something intellectually stimulating with which to challenge the greedy self-seeking society around them. They wanted some explanation for the state of society and they found it in an engaging presentation of evangelical apologetics. Tragically. It would appear that most did not experience conviction of sin, sincere repentance, and the new birth. They looked only for something impressive and fresh for their minds. They were in the self-interested class, the thin layer of soil laying on rocky ground. They were those who, for a time, believed the message, though not for the right reasons, and soon fell away. True faith doesn't just believe in Jesus intellectually, true faith trusts Christ for our eternity. Big difference. Number 4. Avoid the folly of folly of need-based evangelism. Avoid avoid the folly of need-based evangelism. Verse 24 John 6:24 warns us that false professions can be accompanied by apparent zeal and effort and sacrifice. Verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for him. Effort, sacrifice, zeal. But Jesus knows their hearts and he tells them, verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you saw the miracles, but you're not responding rightly. You're only seeking me because you saw the miracle of me multiplying food. You got a free meal and now you want more free food. That's a total, totally inadequate response to Jesus' miracle. Think about this. What was Peter's response when Jesus did a similar miracle of multiplying food, that is in the form of fish, the miraculous draft of fish? What was Peter's response? Great, more food, more free food. No. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O God. He got a sense of who Jesus was and how unworthy he was to be in his presence. Look at the miracles he just did. Surely this is God. Man I'm unworthy. So sinful. As we speak to people about Christ we might come across someone who is very keen to engage in spiritual conversation. They may even be keen to attend church. As we compare this person to other people we've spoken to, this person seems genuine yet such a person may still be motivated by self-interest or from self-interest therefore we must continually emphasize the fact of sin which makes us unworthy in God's presence and therefore they need a saviour. They need a saviour. Some people are happy to talk, even happy to listen. Perhaps they're looking for some kind of security. Other people are looking for companionship and they think that they might actually find a church. The church is perhaps there would be the companion of the ship. There they're looking for. You might just speak to someone, and they, that, that's someone who's actually been brought up in church for a long time, but they stopped attending years ago, and yet for a long time there has been this something gnawing inside of them that uh, really f- makes them feel that they really need to get back to church. They've, there's a guilty conscience there that's looking for soothing, and so when you come along and talk about church, there they found something. That's going to soothe their guilty conscience. They've been nursing this for years. There are many who believe that the way to heaven is by being good. And therefore, they're willing to accept your invitation to church because that just gives them another opportunity to increase their self-righteousness. And you notice these days it's not uncommon for the gospel message to be packed in a way that panders to a person's self-interest. We hear about need-based evangelism. And what that name suggests is that evangelism is designed, in Kelsian language, to meet people's needs. People are sad, therefore we offer them happiness. People are lonely. And so we, uh, the, the gospel message we share, is, it, 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 it talks about companionship. Those who are having difficulties, they're offered counselling. Those who are bored, offered recreation. Those who are suffering from depression, those who are depressed, they're offered help to develop a positive self-image. However, if we evangelise people by offering them whatever they all desire, what we're actually doing is just confirming them in their self-interest. And when the scorching sun of persecution comes, when the choking weeds of worldly desires arise, they fall away. So therefore, rather than pandering to people's self-interest, we need to follow the example of Jesus in John chapter 6 and make it abundantly clear that the greatest need is spiritual. Okay? The words that I speak unto you, are spiritual, he says. The greatest need is spiritual. And unless a person is reconciled to God by the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, he's talking about his, his flesh which is given for them, his, his blood which is given for them. And, and it's only as you become involved in these things, as only as you receive me in this way, that is, he's alluding to an atoning sacrifice for sin. This is what he talks to these people about. It, 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 unless you're willing to come to me on these terms, you have no hope of eternal life. And no physical need is more important than that. Jesus told them plainly, verse 27, Labor not for the meat that perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you. As the rest of the chapter unfolds, we see that the multitudes who professed to follow Jesus were actually refusing his message of atonement. They were refusing what he was saying about their need to address the spiritual issues in their life. And yet better for them to go away with a true understanding of their condition than for them to continue in their false profession or for them to continue and to be confirmed in a false profession. So avoid the folly of a need-based evangelism. Simple gospel, simple gospel, pure unadulterated gospel. You might think, well, eh." you know, if if we just present it that way, you know, aren't we, you know, isn't that going to produce less results if we just come hard With the simple gospel, isn't that going to produce less results? That's debatable. Okay, that's debatable. It may, in in fact, produce more results. Okay, because the pure gospel is exactly what people need to hear, whether they realise it or not. And that's the pure gospel is is that which God blesses. We can talk more about that next week and the week after. But if we just people the the, give, give people the pure gospel. At least we're certainly not going to be creating false assurances or confirming people, you know, their precarious position. All right. Thank you for your patience this night. It's right. It's, it's nine o'clock. Right on the dot. Let's uh, conclude with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that you sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. Thank you for the work that Jesus did upon the cross. And this is the means whereby people are saved. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried. He rose again according to the scriptures. He was seen. Many witnesses. Uh, thank you for the, the fact that Jesus provided that one offering for all people. Uh, all sin can be forgiven uh, by Uh, virtue of the work of Christ upon the cross, if people come to Christ in simple faith, trusting in what Christ has done for them. Uh, Lord, thank you for the gospel message. Thank you for the way that Jesus interacted with people and uh, for the example uh, that he is for us. And uh, Lord, I do pray that we would um, seek to take in the whole counsel of God, uh, to read the gospels carefully and thoroughly and to see how Jesus interacted Uh, with people. Uh, Lord help us to learn, help us to benefit and uh, Lord I pray that our uh, confidence in the gospel message itself uh, would increase. Uh, Lord help us just to uh, go forward in faith uh, trusting you uh, for the results. Uh, Lord help us to do our part to sow sow the good seed and uh, Lord I pray that in confronting some hard people with the gospel, pray that their hard hearts would soften And I pray that the uh, the seed would uh, uh, penetrate good soil and uh, bring forth fruit to the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.